Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the .NET on AWS show, a show where we talk about .NET and AWS twice a week, every other Monday here on Twitch. I'm your host, Brandon Minnick, and with me, as always, is my amazing co-host, Francois. Francois, how's your week? Um, amazing. It was an amazing week because we had an amazing launch last week. And I guess you, you know what I'm speaking about. <laughs> yes. In fact, I have it up on the screen here. What did we launch, Francois? <laughs> we launched the, the support for um, .NET 8 uh, runtime on AWS Lambda. So it means that starting now, you can uh, update your project, your AWS Lambda project to leverage .NET 8 on um, AWS Lambda, and that's really great. Um, I did it on, on Friday. Um, just bump my, uh, I had a AWS Lambda uh, function project with a bunch of CDK to deploy my AWS Lambda function. I just bumped everything to .NET 8, rebuild, deploy, and it was working. Super cool. And it just worked. It that's just incredible. worked. Yeah. But I... there are <laughs> many goodness to get. There are many goodness to get from .NET 8. Yeah, I love it. Because um, one of the, the biggest things, which is here in the blog post, and we've shared the link to this blog post in our chat, um, but essentially .NET 8 is the first runtime that, we'll say GAs, uh, this feature called Native AOT. And with Native AOT, uh, it essentially compiles all your code ahead of time. So that's what AOT stands for, ahead of time compiling, which you might think, hey, I've been making C-sharp apps for years and I always have to click compile before I deploy it. Uh, what's native AOT? Well, uh, when we compile our C-sharp apps, it doesn't compile it all the way down to the assembly language code, the ones and zeros that the CPU needs. So, you know, Intel has specific instruction sets and uh, Mac, Apple Silicon have specific instruction sets they need to know. So what actually happens is when your app launches at runtime, the .NET runtime quickly looks and sees, okay, what chipset are we running on? And then it compiles, it takes that DLL file that we compiled, I'm <laughs> doing finger quotes, uh, quote unquote, and compiled, uh, and then actually compiles it for the processor. So with native AOT, it does that all ahead of time. And long story short, what that means for Lambda is that our apps will launch faster. So we're seeing yeah. cold start times as low as uh, 300, 400 milliseconds now, as long as you have native AOT enabled. And that's basically what's new or the big new feature in .NET 8, because AOT was released in .NET 7, but the .NET team was like, hey, we, we think it's good enough in .NET 7, but maybe don't deploy it to production just yet. We're still trying it out and we're ironing out some, some of the kinks, but in .NET 8, they're like, yep, go use it. So so yeah, not only do you get the latest, greatest goodies in C-sharp 12, .NET 8 for your AWS Lambda, but also uh, if you turn on ahead of time compilation, then here we've got a chart that shows all these different um, optimizations you can do with native AOT, like optimization preference on size and speed. You can set the specific instruction set. And uh, this chart you're seeing on the screen shows average cold start times of around 300, 400 max, or I guess 450, or there's a whole column called max. There we go. 500 milliseconds, uh, which 
was really incredible because I remember when I started using uh, serverless back in the day, we're dealing with a couple second cold start times. And it was like, okay, well, a couple seconds, users are going to notice this. How do I get around this? And I just put fun animations in my app uh, to distract them. But now with, yeah, 300, 400, 500 milliseconds, uh, people are starting to ask me, like, why wouldn't I use serverless for everything? And I'm like, it's a good point. So (laughs) (laughs) as as long as 300 millisecond cold start time isn't going to kill your business, like if you need to make stock trades and they need to happen in milliseconds, then probably still do it the old fashioned way. But I'm excited. I'm so glad we have Don Eddy support up and running on Lambda. yeah, uh, 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 important things, um, we've updated every two links. So if you are using um, the AWS toolkit uh, for Visual Studio, it has been updated to support .NET uh, 8 on AWS Lambda. If you are using the SAM CLI uh, to build a serverless application with uh, this CLI, it has been updated. If you are using CDK like I'm, I'm doing, to package your Lambda uh, function and publish them on in your account, CDK has been uh, updated as well. So everything is is ready to use .NET on AWS Lambda, whatever the tooling you are using. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a big big day. Go update all your all your serverless apps. It sounds like it's as easy as just flipping net 6.0 to net 8.0 and. Well, if you're me, I just right click publish. <laughs> don't don't do that. But if you're me, <laughs> just right go click through your pipeline. Go through <laughs> your pipeline. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and Sabri, just like uh, Francois mentioned, yeah, all the .NET SDKs for AWS have been updated for .NET eight as well. That that support has actually yeah. been rolling out for a few months now, and I think we just um, with the .NET um, eight. Maybe maybe the question is also about uh, how the SDK support trimming for um, native IoT and uh, the .NET SDK is ready for trimming for .NET uh, native IoT. So uh, we are ready for this as well. Love it, love it. Well, as much as I love serverless and can talk about this all day, we have an amazing guest with us and I don't want to take away any more of his time. Um, you know him as a Microsoft MVP and event sourcing veteran. He's the author of Fluent Assertions. Dennis Duman, welcome to hey, the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a big honor to be here. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you so make it sound like a big thing, but uh, I'm just <laughs> a humble uh, servant of the uh, .NET community. <laughs> it, is a, it is a big thing to me. Uh, I, I've <laughs> used <laughs> Fluent Assertion in the past and like, being able to 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 dis- speak with you is like my honor, not your honor. It's my honor uh, to speak with you. Fluid assertions doesn't define me. It actually, I mean, <laughs> the fact that I have a relatively successful open source project doesn't actually mean I'm a great developer. I've well, probably been very good at marketing. No, I'm also not doing <laughs> that. I have no clue. I honestly have no clue how it got there. Well, speaking of which, Dennis, uh, who are you and what do you do for folks who may not have met you before? Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm Dennis. I'm from the Netherlands, which you can obviously hear from my accent. Um, I started, I'm actually in this profession for 27 years. Um, been coding in .NET since 1991, basically from the start. Uh, I think I started programming on my Commodore 64 when I was 11. 
which is a long time ago actually. And um, what happened? Yeah, Commodore 64. Then I started doing C, C++ on my Commodore Amiga when the whole world was still doing uh, single threaded programming on a, what is it? Uh, <laughs> uh, was it at that time? An IE368 or 386 or something? 386, yeah. We had like preemptive multitasking on our Commodore Amiga, which was awesome at that time. But uh, yeah, in 1997, I started um, becoming professional, semi-professional. And uh, I, I think I got somehow ended up in Paris. We were talking about this before the, uh, the session started, French Haar. So in 1999, I lived in Paris for a year, worked for a company, did C and C++ programming, object-oriented programming was the first uh, thing, the first time I saw that. And I got enthusiastic. And then somewhere in 2000, I made a switch to a different company and I started to adopt C-sharp, um, wrote coding guidelines. I, I did actually, I don't know if you remember that, something called managed C++. So that was basically an extension to .NET so you could actually consume C++ libraries, native libraries in C-sharp and create a bridge between the two. So I was working in the um, for Philips, semi, Philips uh, medical systems. They built MRI scanners and they had like the whole UI was built in WinForms at that time, but it was connected to this semi real-time code written in C++. That was pretty amazing stuff at that time. Yeah. So that's cool. how it started. Yeah. yeah. Long time ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, I work for a small consultancy firm in the Netherlands called Aviva Solutions, which is not to be confused with the one, the insurance company in the UK. And what I do, I spend most of the week helping my clients professionalize software development. So basically looking at tools, practices, architecture, uh, uh, .NET, you know, properly using .NET, uh, looking at continuous deployment, which is a path by itself, looking at quality, everything that comes with software development. And I love doing that because there's always so much to improve. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I, I'm I'm the same way. I, I love giving getting into a a, co a code base and just kind of cleaning everything up. And... Oh, awesome! Yeah, I love it. <laughs> the best days. The best day of of a week is when I can actually delete code, preferably somebody else's code because I can rewrite it. <laughs> no, I, I I love this stuff. I'm, I'm I'm I think I made a joke at some conference recently. I said, like, uh, I'm addicted to to legacy code, and I truly am. I love taking it, you know, molding it, introducing seams, you know, making it testable, all this stuff. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's always interesting, uh, to me at least, because I've, I've had to do similar jobs where you go in and um, you you've have a team of developers that can sometimes be, I'll say hostile, but, um, you know, they don't want you there <laughs> and they say things like, ah, oh, like we don't need any help. Everything's fine. And then you look in the code and you're like, you haven't used anything new in C sharp since like C sharp three. Like yeah. I, yes. I, I saw a code base once. I wasn't even, didn't even know what generics were, uh, but they had already told me everything was fine and they didn't need me there. Uh, I was like, okay. So <laughs> back in C sharp three, uh, generics were introduced and, Let's talk about async await and basically, yeah, modernize their whole repo. But, uh, but speaking of which, before you do any modernization, you should have unit tests in place. And you mentioned Dennis, the fluent assertions library at the top of the stream. What is that? And how do we use that yeah. to make our unit tests better? So unit testing, and I'm a big, uh, big proponent of test-driven development is all about trying to make it clear, 
extremely clear what the expected behavior of a piece of system, a piece of the code is. And that can be a class, can be a couple of classes. And um, one element is obviously the name of the test. So use functional naming. Another element is the structure of the test. Like uh, you probably know the range act assert or the given when then constructs, um, which are all important ingredients to make those tests more self self-explanatory. You know, if a test fails, ideally, that's kind of the promise of TDDs. If you actually go to the tests, you get a good sense of what are the different parts of the system and what kind of behavior to expect. But of course, this all um, only works if the tests themselves are readable, self-describing. Well, one element of a test is what is the failure condition? You know, you're doing something, you're calling a method, you're invoking an HTTP endpoint, and you expect something back. And I wasn't really satisfied with the stuff that Microsoft provided at that, at that time. We had MS test, you know, the built-in Fish Studio. Uh, <laughs> and like, if you and you have methods like assert r assert dot r equal. Now the question is, what is the expectation, and which one is actually the um, the uh, the actual value? Uh, interestingly enough, it's very confusing. I don't even remember which one is which. So if if your test fails, it wasn't really obvious. That kind of started like, and we had extension methods at some point, and we thought like, okay, yeah, you know what happens. You can do extension methods. Now you have to use them everywhere. You know, your whole code base should be filled with extension methods. Everybody, yeah. done, everybody yeah. has done that. But we discovered like, oh, we can actually make it more fluent. And I, at some point, I think I read about fluent APIs. I still love them. Some people despise them. I like them. I also practice the, uh, use the test data builder pattern a lot, which is also a fluent API for building different test objects. And we started experimenting with a colleague of mine, Martin Obdam. Uh, like, can we can we make our test more fluid or more self-explanatory? And that started as a small project internal. I think it was called Custom Assertions at that point, um, or Custom Assertion Extensions, or something like that. And uh, eventually, it turned into Fluent Assertions. And then we had Codeplex, which wasn't really good. Really, wasn't really a good platform. Ultimately, when we moved to GitHub and NuGet was introduced, everything changed and it became a bit bigger. But in the end, it's still a tiny library, which only purposes to make your assertions a bit more self-explanatory. Um, became more powerful. Like sometimes you have object graphs that you want to be able to compare. It can do that for you. Uh, you want to array, you want to throw or want to verify that some piece of code throws an exception. <laughs> and if it doesn't do that, you want to know what did it throw instead, or why, or what was the stack trace, or what was the message, and and that's how it evolved and became bigger and bigger. That, Love that. that. So, this. so yeah, if we go we go back to the days before fluent assertions, and that's when I started unit testing. I uh, hadn't hadn't heard of fluent, this fluent assertion libraries yet. So, yeah, I would say like I would run my test, and we do the assert at the end, and if like a boolean was expected to be false for example i would say assert dot false and then i would pass in the the boolean or if i expect something to be equal i would say something like assert dot equal and then i'd pass in the expected and the actual object or so, the other way around yeah <laughs> i could never remember uh and and maybe that's that's one of the problems that we're solving here with fluent assertions but uh, explain to me how how is fluent assertions different than just saying like assert dot false passing in a bool. So uh, in this case, you would have some kind of variable name, let's say a success value or outcome or something like that, which is of type boolean. 
But the big difference is that you can actually say dot should be true or should be false, literally saying like what is the expected outcome. Um, the extra thing is that if your variable has a very self-described name, it will include that into name. So if, for example, you have an, uh, a, value, a Boolean value of which name is result, which is not very self-explanatory, but just for the sake of the discussion, it would actually say expected result to be true, but found false or the opposite way. So actually extract from your test the name of the variable and use that in, in the actual uh, uh, message. Oh, that's one thing. Love that. Yes. <laughs> one other thing. Yeah. You have like a dozen assert statements and one of them fails and it just says the whole test failed. <laughs> and it would be like the assert that failed expected an object to be equal and it wasn't. And you're like, okay, I've got like assert dot equals eight times here. And then I have to go back and put in a breakpoint and find out which one it actually yeah. failed on. So with fluid exactly. assertions, it'll actually tell me the variable name. <laughs> it's, yeah, it seems so simple and obvious, but well, it's, it wasn't. Why weren't we doing that before? <laughs> it, it required quite some uh, hacking around with stack traces and you know analyzing C sharp code and stuff like that. Uh, oh, but really? as an extra thing, because sometimes you are, you're not just verifying that the success should have been true, but you also want to add some phrase like because I'm expecting this operation to be successful, or because I don't know the system is not in the right state. So in addition to just calling um, success dot should be true, you can also pass in a string between the braces as a parameter, and that will become the the reason for the 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 the, 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 the sorry for the assertion. So to literally say then expect it to be true because we were expecting some particular situation, which makes nice. And most people don't use that. I only use it occasionally when it adds value. Sometimes it does add that does add value, especially with booleans. They're so, yeah, anonymous in that sense, uh, and that can be so quite it, useful. It it is really about making your test and and the message human readable. To me, like how you describe this, it's really helping us to be okay. I, I just want to read the message and get in one second just reading the message what is going on. Instead um, of having me, the debugger, I think yeah. Jeremy D. Miller. I don't know if you know Jeremy. He wrote a structure map and a cover, and now he's on the Critter stack. He once wrote like, "You should keep out of the debugger hell." That's one of the reasons. You know, if the test fails, it should be completely and immediately obvious why it fails. Same with a string. Like you have two strings, and I'm using my hands, and I don't know if the audio version won't be able to see, but you have the expected string and you have the actual string. Is it going to be really helpful? It says I'm expecting this string, but I found that string. You know, especially <laughs> if the strings are almost the same. There's one character. Influent assertions will actually use little arrows above or the top to show you where the difference is. For example, same with collections. Oh, cool. That kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, th that's why we invest a lot to make that message as self-explanatory as possible. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense because. Yeah, I've, I've been there. I've gotten that error where it's like expected this string, got this string. And like you're just looking at them in the console and you're like, yeah, it's the same string, but you don't realize maybe one has a trailing white space or something silly like that. Uh, so it will detect. Goodness, yeah, I didn't realize. Like if, if, if the same string, but there's some white space at the end, it will actually say, but the other one has extra white space at the end. You know, that kind of stuff. Ooh. 
And it, again, Ooh, to be honest, it. this is not something we designed <laughs> from scratch. It actually, you know, by trying, by contributions from external contributors, it evolved over 13, 14 years that I worked on this. No, 16 years already. So yeah, that's yeah. how it worked. Became better and better, I think. And I, I really love the, the collective intelligence you've added to, to the library uh, over the time, because to me, that sounds like collective intelligence of people using the library and saying, oh, we could improve by adding this and this. But that's because I practice test-driven development in all my projects. And I use the library, obviously, myself. It actually started because I was looking for something to make my test more self-explanatory. I still do. You know, if I, a lot of people talk about quality of software, and I tend to make a distinction between internal quality and external quality uh, to help understand managers what quality is about. Because if you think about software quality, um, external quality is typically what managers love and quality assurance engineers will look at and what product owners look at. And if the external quality bugs, uh, responsiveness, uh, and a UI that's not very intuitive, typically what will happen, the product owner will complain or your manager will complain or clients will complain. But the internal quality is about like how well can you maintain and develop that code further in the future. And for me, that kind of breaks down. I, I thought about this and I'm trying to always explain that to managers. The internal quality is the part that you don't see. That's about testability. It's about readability. It's about how isolated can I make a change on one side of the system without breaking the other side. It is about traceability. It is about discoverability, traceability, like why was this piece of code changed? So I also look at source control. You know, did you actually capture the the rational the the, the reason for a code change in your commit message or your pull request message? You know, stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, but a lot of people don't do that. And discoverability yeah, is usually about that's that's why I'm laughing is I've I've not done that myself. <laughs> See? And I, I've or, I've seen several times in my career um point in time where a manager start to care about what you've just described but too late too late it is yeah. when yes it is when you start explaining okay to fix this bug it will take two days not one day it will take two days but why because the code has not evolved <laughs> not evolved <laughs> in the right way and it is a mess to fix this code yeah just fix it Dude, just, you're fix software, just fix it. Yeah, but that's the <laughs> difficult part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. This is exactly what I'm what I was been struggling. And as a consultant, although I'm not the type of consultant that just goes in for a couple of days, I'm usually at a client for a year or a couple of years to really make a change. This is a topic that comes up every time, and, and because of that, those five elements, testability is a big part of that. And testability is not just about using flu fluent assertions; it's about you know ident identifying the internal boundaries of your code base. Um, uh, making things testable, understanding like what's the scope of a unit test, and again, fluent assertion was one of the tiny ingredients that I was that I missed, and I started coding on that. But I, if you look at the, the unit test that uh, fluent assertion themselves has, uh, I like to use them as a kind of an example of how I like to see unit tests in that case. Uh, so these are typically topics. I know I know Brandon actually because we both speak at conferences. Yes, thank you for the link. Um, because we both speak at conference, and I, I typically also I don't I happen to be talking about fluent assertion a couple of times. Usually, I talk about you know how to practice test driven development without shooting yourself in the foot, how to deal with legacy code and stuff like that, uh, and that that's how it evolved. It was just something I needed to do all the other things to accomplish the other things. I love that, and 
honestly, I feel like that's where the best software comes from is when you have a need yourself. And I'm, I'm fairly selfish like that as well, where there's code I find I'm copy pasting from repo to repo. And I'm just like, you know, screw it. I'll just publish it as a NuGet package because I need it. And if anybody else wants to use it, great. Um, and that's how some of my libraries got started where, uh, yeah, then folks start using it. It becomes a thing. But really, it was just I needed it. <laughs> and I got tired of copy pasting the code myself. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel like anytime you're creating something because you found that need, and you're using that in your own project. So you're going to continue iterating it. You're going to find those rough edges and um, improve the software to make them better. Then, yeah, you end up with just this amazing library. And it's no wonder why it, Fluent Assertions has taken off and become so popular because it's battle tested. You know, Dennis, like you're saying, like you've been using it in your apps for years now and you made it because it was a thing you needed, not just, uh, Hey, I came up with this cool idea. Uh, it's like, no, I came up with this cool idea because I needed it. You want to have other people, you know, want to make sure people benefit from that. I mean, you like me go to conferences and talk, speak to people about your, your topics that you're passionate about. It's not because you're selfish, it's because you think other people can benefit from that. That's the same thing for me. But there's a flip side, of course, because yeah, if you put something on the internet, and it actually kicks off, you know, <laughs> like uh, like an open source library. At some point, you don't do it for yourself anymore because there's too many people wanting things from you. And that is obviously the flip side of open source development. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, it costs <laughs> a lot of time. Yeah. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with I that? I don't. I'm, I'm currently, no. No, it's, 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 it's close yeah, the issue, it's, close the discussion. <laughs> yeah. So it's, 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 it becomes a project on itself. It becomes a project with requirements, priorities, uh, design challenges, maintenance. You know, you have to think about backwards compatibility. You have to be available. You, you actually become the architect, the team lead, the product owner. The business analyst, all of that at the same, the quality assurance engineer, you become all of these things at the same time. I, I actually just it popped up in my mind. I just realized that that you're doing all these things because it's a project. It has timelines. You know, we have people asking things from you. They issue, they request uh, support. They suggest improvements. And if you say, "I like that improvement," or "I like that feature or extension," then there's also this implicit expectation that you will work on that. But people actually forget <laughs> that this is it's a pro, it's an open source project that I do next to my full time data day job, you know, which makes it hard. And I know that a lot of open source developers are struggling with that. I mean, first they struggle like, okay, I want my thing to become a little bit more famous. I I want to be able to use it, that people use it. But then it, you know, the scale tips the other side. Is okay, but now I have to support it and I have to satisfy all these people that need it, like with fluid assertions which has something like 330 million downloads now, um, there's a lot of people wanting things from us. And you actually see or will run into situations where people are pissed off because you didn't like the idea or you decided not to accept that. You know, that's one of the topics I talk about about the conference talk is that we accepted at some point a feature that we should never have, should never have accepted because 
but we did accept it because we felt like, yeah, this guy actually put so much energy in it. And we know how painful that can be if you get rejected. You know, maybe we should just accept it. But then it started to, you know, backfire. And, and now we're trying to undo that or at least you know, separate <laughs> that feature in its own package. That's like it's technical depth. You build up technical depth, which you have to address as well. You know, that is the challenge of, I would say, a reasonably successful open source project. Yeah, that's, uh, and I'll caveat this with, I don't have any open source libraries that have 300 million downloads. So congratulations. <laughs> that's a huge success. Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I work on a couple open source projects, like my async await best practices library has one and a half million downloads, which I that's pretty impressive. Until a couple seconds ago, I thought was pretty good. And I'm still leading the .NET Maui community toolkit library, which is all open source. And yeah, I think something the or probably the biggest thing I struggle with is just the folks that come in and like I said, essentially demand things. Um, when that's the, that's the right word, I was looking. <laughs> yeah, when when the irony is that like it's it's an open source project, so yes, you can absolutely ask for a feature or uh, a bug fix, uh, but at the same time, what's the solution? Like you can also come with a solution. Like here's you have all the same source code I do. Um, you can submit the fix. You can submit uh, even just like an API design or proposal, um, but yeah, some folks get really rude, <laughs> to put it kindly, True. True. where it's like, I can't believe you haven't fixed this yet, or I can't believe yeah. you haven't implemented this feature yet. And and yeah, I found really all, all I can do at, is just remind them and say, hey, yep, I don't get paid to work on this. Uh, this is something I do for fun on nights and weekends. And same with all the other maintainers here on this library. If you have a minute and would be able to help us out like we'd love a pull request from you or you know try to nudge them and just remind them like hey i'm not making any money off this like i i just do this for fun <laughs> and i'm just another human on the other side of the yeah. world so yeah what what have you yeah, experienced and how do you so we did at least what we tried to do is streamline that approach process so what we did for example is make it very clear from the contribution guidelines what we expect and how you can make that contribution as smooth as possible and get it into uh, the main code base. That's one thing. Um, the other thing is what we do is um, we have this process when somebody actually submits a pull request. The first thing is what we do is actually suggest, and that's also what we do in the pull request template, which GitHub offers, like create an issue first. Create an issue that you where you suggest your improvement we then tag it as API suggested. Then we have some discussions about it, like, is this what we want? Um, is this what we want? Does it actually make sense? Is it like consistent across the whole code base? Because yeah, it's a library. And we want it to be consistent because we want it to be intuitive for people to use. And a lot of developers forget about that. Like, oh, we can add this method. Yeah, but wait a second. We also have to have the negative version of it. Or what? Are, how, do, how are we going to implement that? Uh, also, what we do is when people create an issue, one of the items is, will you be able to create a pull request to implement this feature? Yes or no? If somebody says yes, you know, and they follow the guidelines and we use Roslyn analyzers and editor configs to make sure that, that we don't even have to spend time on, you know, the layout is not correct or something. We we introduced a lot of things over the years in the build pipeline, even, even uh, spell checking. 
that the documentation you write is correctly <laughs> correct English. Yeah, stuff like that. If you create a new feature, um, the website, the documentation website, fluentdesearch.com, is actually part of the code base. So you can actually create a pull request with a new feature and also include the actual documentation for that with examples and release notes. So we try to streamline that approach. And the good thing is I'm now also using all these ideas in my client's projects where we try to adopt this whole inner sourcing thing. But in the end, there will still be a situation where we really don't want a feature. We have a Slack account and we sometimes have to use the Slack account to um, to start a discussion with somebody like, you know what, we really appreciate what you're trying to do and we understand your point, but sometimes we have to make a decision like an architect has to do sometimes, you know? Yeah, there's different area, different perspectives, different different opinions. Sometimes somebody has to put this, you know, the fist on the table and say, guys, girls, uh, we talked about, we talked a lot about that. There's reasons we made some decisions. We're not going to do this, or we're actually going to do this, or we're going left or right. Exactly like influencers, same thing. And I know some open source developers that actually got burned out because of this, uh, because there were so much demands from the community to do things. Um, yeah, where they actually at some point like abandoned the whole project. And that's not a good thing either. Uh, so that that's a, that's a challenge, I guess. I yeah. still am lucky. I have a good uh, companion, uh, Jonas Nirup. He lives in Denmark. He has been helping me with the, for the last four or five years. He's very uh, very critical. Uh, spends a lot of time, and we have pretty like a pretty great big group of contributors that help us. So that's a good thing. But we're lucky. Yeah, it's fantastic. And that's something that it pains me too. I've, I've been in that similar situation where somebody's already done a ton of work. They've opened up the pull request and you know what, what they're asking for is essentially done. Um, but at the same time, it's, it doesn't fit or it's maybe just not the right way to architect it, maybe not the right way to do it. And so like the idea is still good and we want to do it, but uh, actually, we should have done it like this. And yeah, you feel terrible uh, closing that pull request because you can just see the hours that they've put in. And this exactly. isn't even their library. They've gone through just the effort alone of forking and cloning and learning your code base and um, like that in itself <laughs> before even implementing a new feature is a ton of work. So yeah, I, I don't know what the solution is, but what I've done for the .NET MAUI community toolkit is uh, I, I copied this from the C-sharp, um, the actual um, C-sharp repo uh, where we've set, I've set up this workflow where it's you first open a proposal for adding a new feature. So show us the API design, like what's the intent behind it. Um, and that way, we can we can chat about what it is first um, and hopefully save you the time from having to then close a PR that maybe, hey, like, this is a great idea, but we should have implemented it this way. Or actually, that doesn't fit in with what we're trying to do here. You actually want this other repo over here. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of the toughest things because you know, we were chatting earlier, there's more folks uh, demanding things than there are folks contributing. So when you get somebody who actually does contribute, you want to uh, nurture that experience and hopefully they'll contribute again. But yeah, sometimes you just have to close it and you feel like just the terrible person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And, and but what you just suggested, what you just told us, exactly what we do as well, you know, to prevent people from creating pull requests. And it's also about like, what do you get in return from it? Because uh, some people say like, I mean, why can't we get money for the open source, like the work that we do? And that's a, that's tricky. That's difficult because on one hand, yeah, getting some sponsors, you know, GitHub has been very good at facilitating this. It's awesome, you know. I don't know if you saw that. For example, the developer of Fuji.js, he earns quite a lot of money purely through sponsoring. He can probably, I think he gave up his day job already a couple of years ago because he wow. gets so much money. But it's still an open source project. I have a day job. And it's great to get some money in return. But that was never the goal. I mean, in the end, it was just to contribute to the community. Uh, yeah, it, it won't give you money immediately, but it will give you some kind of recognition. I mean, I can I can speak for myself. And I'm probably here because I spoke at NDC. And why did I speak at NEC? I guess because Fluent Assertion became like was was such became such a big thing. All of that becomes part of that, and kind of is a way to become more yeah, more visible. And I, I have to admit, if I go to a client and I can see I, I see that they're already using it, you know, everywhere. Of course, that's awesome. That's that's probably the the biggest. That's probably even yeah, I would say the the, the most important, not the most important thing, but the nicest thing to hear that. To see that they actually use it everywhere, or I had it once that I had like I was working for a client, and they had an, uh, a job applic an applicant, a guy coming in, all the way from the other side of the world, and he actually wanted to see me to thank me for fluent assertions. I don't even know how to respond to that. Like, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's like now back to your resume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. no, but you must have the same thing, right? If you if somebody. You know, appreciate something you've done. That's that's all we need, right? To get going, to feel the appreciation. Yeah, that's that's the best. I love that when it was like, you know, I just want to say thank you. You know, I use your library and my apps, and uh, it means a lot to me. And thanks for uh, continuing to support it and maintain it. Um, but yeah, no, I'm in a similar boat, Dennis. Where yeah, I would love to make money off of all the work we do in open source. You know, I easily put in 10 to 20 hours a week uh, just maintaining open source projects. Uh, but but yeah, no, I agree. It It's kind of become, it's a conduit to um, improving, improving yourself as a developer, improving your career. Um, you, if the open source project does take off, you, you will get some name recognition from that. And while you might, while we might not benefit directly from it, like, Yes, you said GitHub sponsors, and yes, I have one sponsor, and I get something like five bucks a month, <laughs> which is great. But I can't quit my day job. Um, but but yeah, at the same time, the opportunities that open up and the folks that, um, like I said, like just want to hear you speak now because <laughs> you have an oh. open source project uh, until they fed up with me. Open. No, it's not surprising. <laughs> like like last year, we uh, my client of my uh, employer, Aviva Solutions. We were we had a little stand at the Tecarama conference, which is a pretty big thing in Europe these days. And as a kind of a, as a gig, we created T-shirts, fluid assertions T-shirts, and we let ChatGPT actually generate the uh, the theme because the theme of Tecarama was uh, the jungle. So we tried, you know, have ChatGPT generate like taglines with jungle and fluid assertions in it. It was pretty <laughs> awesome, it was pretty funny actually. And uh, we created T-shirts. And we thought, yeah, I mean, nobody wants these t-shirts. I mean, who wants a t-shirt of fluent insertions? 
like within a couple of hours, they were all gone. And now I have people at NDC asking like, oh, do you have these t-shirts at some point? We, we'd love to have them, you know? It's, it's, it's incredible. It has become collector. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, yeah. Apparently, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. But you could say the same thing about Nougat. You know, you can say Phil Hack actually did a great job introducing Nougat in the world. It made a huge difference. Same with GitHub. GitHub actually changed the way software development works for me. You know, and whatever you can say about the other options, but GitHub actually, the whole pull request thing, that was a big deal. Not only when I moved from Codeplex to GitHub, things started to, you know, uh, change because it became obvious for people to contribute before that. Remember maybe patch files? You know, in the, patch, in the past, you had to use a patch file that contained a Delta to change files. It was really horrible oh, if you wanted to do that. <laughs> yeah, no. you don't even remember that. It's, Is it's, that a Codeplex thing? Or like it was a, a Codeplex thing. It was also oh, okay. a Linux thing. You know, you could take two files and generate a patch file. You know, not a batch file, but a patch, like P-A-T-H-P-A-T-C-H. Yeah. And if people want to contribute, they can upload the patch file. Then I had to manually manually apply the patch, like, okay, come on. So yeah, GitHub was definitely, I would say, the big instigator that or the catalyst that made all of this possible. Next to NuGet, of course. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. So... Yes, I know we've been talking about fluent assertions for a while now, uh, but before the show, we were chatting about, uh, well, all the amazing things you do. And you mentioned to us a couple other topics on, uh, like, specifically, continuousimprover.com, csharpcodingguidelines.com. Want to make sure we cover everything, although we'd love to have you back for round two and talk about even more amazing projects you work on. But uh, yeah, tell us a little bit more about continuousimprover.com. It's 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 not really much. It's just my blog. And um, a couple of years ago, I read a book called Soft Skills, uh, which I don't have. No, just kidding. Uh, it's written by John Sommers. <laughs> and it is a book that actually talks about, yeah, li- literally with the title is Soft Skills. And one of the things that, it, that the book actually tries to suggest is that you come up with some kind of niche, you know, that that that, that identifies you, that you actually like. Or maybe some motto to you know to make you stand out from the rest. Uh, and I thought like, yeah, what is the thing I'm doing? Well, yeah, I have to. I have a little stupid little library, but that, that doesn't define me. And what defines me is the fact that I'm always looking for ways to do things better. I mean, that's why I go to conferences, not just to speak, but also to you know to talk to people, exchange ideas, learn from other people. Uh, so at some point, I thought like, okay, maybe I'm the continuous improver. I'm always continuously looking for new ways. To do things better, new techniques, new tools, new architectures, uh, you know, on the cultural level, on the team organization, all of that. And that's that's what it is. And I try to share my experience there. Uh, usually when I come up with new uh, presentation or conference talks, I usually also write blog posts about that, where I try to capture these things. And it's also a way for me, and that's also what I like about blogging, both publicly as well as internally. It's a nice way to funnel my thoughts. You know, you have lots of stuff going on and trying to write that down into a comprehensive story is very powerful because it forces you to structure all these thoughts in your brain and try to make it you know, make it an, a nice integrated story. And that's what also, and also from my past, I, I regularly run into blog posts from the past and I remember like, wow, I don't even remember I wrote that, but that's actually pretty sensible <laughs> advice. I should have followed that. 
<laughs> you know, all the files. So that's what's continuous improvement. It's just my blog where I share everything around tools, techniques, practices, everything. If I go to, I love to go to QCon, which is a big conference in various parts of the country. Uh, it's completely different from, for example, Microsoft conference because they talk about what GitHub did to scale the platform or what LinkedIn they did to um, keep company the company interesting for people. Like, uh, how do you grow people? Stuff like that. And also about all this stuff that I learned, I try to write it down for my future self as a reminder. There's a lot of stuff that I wrote about, just stuff that I learned. Sometimes I'm very inspired and sometimes I'm not. <laughs> I love that. I, I, uh, I've forgotten things that I've blogged about and you Google them later and you come across your own blog post or your own Stack Overflow answer. And you're like, oh, yeah. This is exactly what I needed. <laughs> yeah. To jerk your memory. Yeah. Right. It is. Thanks, and thanks of course, yeah. Other, yeah. And if other people benefit from that, that's that's a plus, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I hope we will continue to to have many people writing blog posts because personally, uh I think I take a lot of value of reading those blog posts. Um and it is really worth. I really encourage, um, especially new developers, to uh, to find uh, some blog posts to blogs to follow and learn from from them. Especially when you are at the early stage of your career, even even after, but even more at the early stage of your career, it's it really helps you to to build your path, to learn from others, to learn from different experience perspective. Um, it is. It is really important, and sometimes, while I love video content for getting started, when you want to go deep into uh, a topic, a, a good blog post, well written, is, is really worth. Uh, so I really encourage everyone to continue to write blog posts. Sometimes I'm, I'm a bit worried about the fact that we 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 stop doing so because there is a AI coding companion or AI assistant that <laughs> answer every uh, every question uh but we have to remember that they are fueled by what we write so we need to continue to write yeah <laughs> it's also like i like i like reading and i like writing but there's of course a whole generation now that actually only loves to watch videos and they have an attention span of like i don't know 30 seconds uh I'm struggling with that as well because creating videos, you know, is a lot more work than writing a blog post, <laughs> especially so to work. keep it appealing. Yeah, I mean, you, you probably know that better than me, but I see these people creating blog posts or videos about all kinds of stuff. What's his name? The I think he's Mexican guy or something. He, he's very popular these days. He was also at NEC a couple of times. Forget his name. Uh, there's Nick Chapsis is probably yes, one of the most that's popular. The yeah, exactly. Like just imagine how much time you have to spend on the to create a video every day or something like that. That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, but also it's... doing demos live it means your demos need to be perfect. That's like a presentation, right? And I guess you, both me and Brandon, I don't know about Francois, knows like how much time it will take you to do a presentation. Oh, he lives in London now. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, Nick's, Nick's originally uh, Greek, and he lives in. Oh, London he's now. Greek. I thought There's... he was from Mexico or something. 
Yeah, no, I, the, the first time I hung out with Nick, I asked him, I was like, man, I just can't place your accent. And he's obviously super fluent uh, in English because he lives in London. But uh, yeah, it's that mix of Greek and English. Ah, I didn't know that. I thought this guy flew all the way from Mexico or something to London. Now. Okay. But it's, <laughs> it's awesome because it also attracts a different kind of audience. And you have, you have different kind of people that consume knowledge in different ways of doing it. Now, I'm just not patient enough to watch a video. I will just follow <laughs> it all the time. I'll put it on, you know, 1.5 speed or something. Uh, podcast, yeah, maybe in a car if I have a long trip. But working from home so much, I, uh, it, it, I find it difficult to do that. But everybody has different ways of learning. And we need to accommodate for everybody, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And, and yeah, you know, I was, I was joking with my wife the other day because uh, she's starting to make videos now, too. And, you know, you, you, you'll run into the same problem as you start making videos yourself where it's just, yeah, you realize how much work goes into it. And yeah. you know, I told her, I was like, yeah, you know, I spent the whole day yesterday working on a five minute video, five minutes. And but what that really entails is, yeah, a, you got to get everything set up. So you have like your little studio and make sure your video is good and your sound's good. And then you got to script it out and then all the editing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so much work that, uh, you don't, you don't see <laughs> cause yeah, you just see the on-screen video. Um, and you're like, Oh, five minutes. What, what do you mean? That took you a whole day. It's like, well, <laughs> there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And what's the return of investment of that? Huh? I mean, I don't have the whole day. I'm working. I have a full day, a full day job. I have open source projects. I have a blog. I have uh, a life. I have a family. <laughs> I also like to play games. You know, my PC once every while. In a month, we have um, we have the new uh, Ryzen Forbidden West coming out on the PC. Well, don't expect any features and fluent assertions in, in the next <laughs> month. So we'll be busy with that. You know, it's also about sometimes you're just fed up with it. Sometimes your energy is drained or your day is you have spent so much time and energy in your in your work, your day job. I just want to sit on the couch, watch TV, you know, TV series or movie or whatever. That's the reality. You know, it's it's not a job. Not a job. How do we get here? Because we went off track completely. <laughs> um I think it was it all stemmed from the continuous improver conversation oh, yeah. and <laughs> but, yeah but speaking of which uh c-sharp coding guidelines.com uh we've oh, got another yeah. awesome resource that you shared with us uh i'm looking at it now and just the first paragraph says what is this it says it's a document that attempts to provide guidelines or coding standards for all versions of sheet of C sharp. So yeah, tell us more about code C sharp coding guidelines.com and that's C sharp yeah. spelled out. So C S H A R P coding guidelines.com. It's literally what it is. Um, <laughs> it is guide like I when I when I started programming with C sharp 20 years ago, uh, I worked for a company and they had like a C standard. And at some point we thought like it could be beneficial to have something similar for C sharp. And um I mean, there were a lot of things that you can do wrong. At that time, it talked about like, if you implement iDisposable, you have to call Dispose because we didn't have a Roslyn analyzer, analyzers that did that for you. We didn't have Resharper yet or Rider at that time to you know help you make those mistakes. 
but also basic object-oriented principles. And over the years, and it exists for like 20 years now, we ripped out things which are completely obvious. We introduced elements like, when do I believe you should use far? Or why I believe you should not use an underscore for private fields, which can be almost like a religious debate, yes. <laughs> I always I use underscore. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but it's just a collection of what I would say, what I personally would think best practice that I follow myself, uh, trying to coerce you in the proper application of C-sharp. Uh, but it also comes with the Rosten analyzer created by uh, uh, Bart Kuhlmann, who's a contributor who created actually his own analyzers to help you detect certain things. And uh, yeah, it's something you can use or you don't, you don't use. The cool thing about the uh, C-sharp codingguidelines.com, it's actually a GitHub site that you can fork and adopt for your own company. So if you want your own guidelines, and Ooh. there's always some architect that wants this, uh, you can actually take that and fork it and adjust it for your needs and publish it internally. That's the whole idea, actually. And it can generate a PDF and you have a cheat sheet, which is like a 1A4. And some people hate this stuff. You know, I've been notorious for my coding guidelines, uh, but I still see value in that. It becomes less and less, you know, with all these great Rosen analyzers. Uh, but still, yeah, it's, you know, I would suggest just read them, build your own opinion, disagree or agree or fork them or whatever you want. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Yeah, I love that because that's um, you know something I I do <laughs> on every pull request that comes in um, to say the .NET Maui Community Toolkit or Async Way Best Practices. Um, yeah, I have uh, a set of coding guidelines that we ask you to follow, but at the end of the day, not everybody does, not everybody implements it. So I always kind of come in and you're kind of like the uh, the cleanup guy, right? You're like the janitor that it's not changing any functionality, but just rearranging things. And like you said, maybe editing some variable names to make them more descriptive or adding or removing an underscore from uh, from a field. And yeah, it, you just kind of hit me that, why don't, why don't I have an analyzer that does that? <laughs> How many yeah, hours because the feedback life? cycle will be fast. You don't have to actually talk to, you know, complain to, uh, to people about a particular thing. On a pull request, you have the wrestling analyzer already giving you early feedback, right? That's the value of that. Yeah, and that's something um, you know we mentioned NDC. Which, if you haven't heard of NDC, it's an amazing conference. You can go to NDC conference, uh, ndcconferences.com, and they've got conferences in London and Sydney. And I was just in uh, Dennis and I were both in the one in Sydney, and actually all three of us were at the one in London. But in Sydney, um, David Fowler, Damien Edwards were there. Um, Scott yeah, yeah. And, you know, they were talking about, you know, how the newer versions of C Sharp come out. And actually, Mad, Mads is there, Mad Torgensen, the, uh, the PM for C Sharp, and how every year you could argue C Sharp gets more complicated because they add new features. Uh, but at the same time, it's modernizing C Sharp. So, you know, pattern matching was a huge thing that came out. And, oh, yeah. Um, with, a long way of saying uh, what they're doing now is using analyzers to kind of nudge us in that direction. Because for the longest time, these new features have been coming out and you know, I love it. So I always read all the release notes and immediately add in the new C-Sharp 12 features to my apps. But a lot of folks don't. And how do you discover those? And um, 
how do you do this all without breaking changes, you know, breaking that old um, .NET C-sharp code we wrote years ago. And yeah, they're using analyzers to you know, give you a suggestion, maybe give, maybe give you a warning that you could do this better or there's a more succinct way of writing this code uh, to nudge in that direction. So lots of great use, uses for analyzers. So uh, Dennis, we've only got about two minutes left because oh, wow. there's another show coming on at the top of the hour. So we get kicked off whether we end the show or uh. not. Um, but before we do, uh, this has been an amazing conversation. So thank you for coming on. But for folks who want to continue the conversation with you, where, where can they find you? Well, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Mastodon, I'm on Blue Sky. Uh, you can also join the Flute Assertion Slack if you want to. You can email me. Email me. There's so many different channels you can reach me. Um, I love to talk about my work. I love to talk about TDD, about architecture, about event sourcing, all the other topics. There's so much stuff I love to talk about. And uh, yeah, I guess you'll share the uh, all the different URLs where you can reach me. Um, LinkedIn, obviously. Yeah, I'm everywhere. Got it. And is are you D Duman everywhere? So D D O O M E N. No, I'm actually. Oh, that's Most a good question. question. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll drop it in the show notes. Uh, yes. Uh, there's a couple of different. I guess not. I don't actually know for for sure what what different names are. But D Duman is definitely on uh, on Twitter X. I'll drop them later on. Right on. We'll we'll grab those. We'll add them to the show notes. But Dennis, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's always amazing having these conversations with folks like yourself who have been in the trenches, contributing to the community, creating open source libraries for years now. There's so much we can learn from you. I know I'll be subscribing to continuousimprover.com to stay up to date with the latest and greatest. But thanks again so much for joining us. And, and thank you for coming here and joining us today. We'll be back every other week. Don't forget to subscribe to our audio podcast and the Twitch stream. Make sure you never miss an episode. And we'll see you again in two weeks.